0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. It's Thursday, the 11th of June today. We're recording this in the afternoon, and it's been over a month uh, since we recorded our last news episode. But of course, we've released two fascinating interviews with Heather Smith and then Harinda Sidhu in that time. Today is also the recording of our 49th episode, and we have something very special planned for our 50th, so stay tuned for that in a few weeks' time. Now we have a very full slate today, so I'm going to cut back a little on the time spent introducing the issues and focus on our analysis. We really have to begin with what's happening in the US, and from there we'll turn to some recent questions of Australian foreign policy, the bilateral relationship with India, and the G7 summit invitation. Third, we'll turn briefly to reflect on the WHO inquiry episode and lessons learned for Australia. Fourth, we'll even more briefly consider the latest developments regarding Hong Kong. And finally, we'll return to the very familiar topic of economics and national security in light of some notable stories from the past week. Okay, well, to begin, it's been a truly astonishing and distressing few weeks in the United States as sustained protests have been seen across the country in the wake of a truly horrifying video of a police officer choking the life out of an African-American man, George Floyd, while President Trump has lurched from controversy to embarrassment and back again in his efforts to handle the crisis.
1: Darren, I'm going to upend the normal order of affairs and get in first today. What was your reaction to what you've been seeing in the U.S.?
0: Yes, well, I lived in the US for, I think it was six years, and when there, I got more of an appreciation, I suppose, of the challenge of racism and and race relations, seeing it up close in a way, and seeing how it permeates society in a way that I personally haven't experienced in Australia. And that, of course, says more about my situation in society than it does Australian society overall. But even having witnessed that in the US, I'm only now learning, I think, how deeply entrenched systemic racism is in the country and how relentlessly awful the experience of of policing and criminal justice is for African-Americans in particular, and thus how far the U.S. has to go. And I'm also reminded that it's not just the U.S., but of course here in Australia and many countries around the world that have work to do. But I think, importantly, from the politics of this, many Americans are coming to this realisation as well, perhaps like me in many ways for the first time, Of course, these kinds of triggering examples of vivid police violence have happened before, but we have, this time around, two factors exacerbating them. One is the stresses caused by COVID-19, lockdowns and economic hardship. And second, you have the extremely divided country under President Trump's leadership, or lack thereof. Trump has shown himself to be utterly incapable of doing almost anything needed to quell this discontent, both because he personally doesn't have the capacity to handle these crises, I think, but also because he's already destroyed his credibility with more than half the population. And so the consequence of this is not just a policy failure, but, as we have seen, civil disorder. But this, I think, leads to the silver lining. While you would have thought 100,000 dead from COVID-19 would have done it, this tragedy, even more so, I think, is highlighting the true consequences of a lack of presidential leadership. And I spend some time reading and listening to conservative media and podcasts, and I'm hearing conservatives expressing not just horror, but genuine surprise at what's happening. And I think they are realizing, or at least at the margins, those on the conservative side of politics are realizing that the complete breakdown of social order is too high a price to pay for judges and tax cuts. And so I think speaking today, the probability is higher than ever that Trump will lose, and not just lose, but lose heavily. One example, you could even see an endorsement by former President George W. Bush of Biden. Now, of course, there's still a long way to go, but I think what distinguishes even somewhat functioning democracies like we have in the United States from authoritarian regimes is that substantive change is something you can realistically hope for, and I'm hopeful myself. Alan, from your point of view, looking at this through the lens of Australian foreign policy, do these events remind you of anything? Is there a historical analogue? And are they changing your assumptions about how we should orient ourselves in the future?
1: They certainly have historical resonance. I mean, like you, I've lived in the US, but a long time before you did. In the early 1980s, I went to live in in Washington and then just... Two blocks away from the Australian embassy down on 14th Street, you could still see the visible scars of the 1968 riots after the death of Martin Luther King. So the demonstrations as I watch them on television are a reminder of the persistence of these racial and social divisions in American life. But also, obviously, of the energy and resilience of the uh, system that's brought the demonstrators out onto the streets. I was listening to to an interview on a podcast with Tanahisi Coates a couple of days ago. He's one of the most original African and American thinkers and writers. And the surprising thing was that he was talking really hopefully about mm. this moment in time and the way the crowds of demonstrators, compared with the 1960s were broadly representative of all elements of the American community. So maybe there is a very positive thing to, to come out of this. The most obvious impact on Australia, as you were saying, is that it reminds us of our own failures towards Indigenous uh, Australians and the fact that you need an incident like this in the United States to refocus attention here on Indigenous death rates is actually a pretty sad reflection on us in, in some ways. Mm. But for an Australian foreign policy perspective, the immediate question is how this impacts on the US election campaign. I sure hope you're right, and that as some polls suggest, some of Trump's core supporters are abandoning him. But there's always a possibility that he'll uh, charge to a slim victory on Mm. a law and order banner. As I've said before, I, I just can't see the ANZUS alliance Remaining the unquestioned bipartisan centrepiece of Australian foreign policy at the end of a second Trump term. Mm. Mm. The differences between us in values as well as interests, as Republicans like Colin Powell have been reminding us during the week, would just be too much weight to carry. So, are your views changing on this? Not yet.
0: Uh, To me, I'm seeing um, resilience, or sufficient resilience anyway, in. American institutions. I've said before that from time to time Democracies will elect unsuitable and even dangerous leaders and that's because the status quo is being punished and Punishment of the status quo is a feature not a bug of a democratic system The question is then what happens next near will political institutions constrain such leaders and can they be reelected and so while I accept that Trump Trump's actions in office have highlighted how much the structure of American democracy does rely on norms that are not properly enforceable and vulnerable to extreme partisanship. I've also seen plenty of substantive pushback against him, enough to curb many of his policy instincts, of course not all, and enough, I think this is what's important, to give the American people sufficient information to understand who and what he is in time for the next election. I mean, a good example of these constraints is Trump's attempt to withdraw fully from the World Health Organization. It turns out he's actually prohibited from doing so by US law and can only yeah. affect a withdrawal after fulfilling two congressional conditions, one of which is waiting 12 months. And even if he is elected and does continue with the withdrawal, there are both legislative and legal options that could be implemented to stop him or slow him. So it's hard to see institutions doing this kind of work unless you're watching very closely and you can cut past all of the grim news. And if you are watching that closely, you might be despairing anyway because of the damage that is still being done. But I I don't think it's all bad. The point of all this from Australia's point of view, I think, is that we all know that US power is decreasing in relative terms. We know that the US will not again exercise the hegemonic leadership of the international order that it has. But that a lot can still be fixed with a Biden victory and a competent return to presidential governance. As you say, if Trump wins again, Australia will have a lot more work to do in thinking about its place in the world. But if Biden wins, we won't need to change nearly as much, I think, in the short term. And that, it makes sense for me, therefore, for us to wait and see. Okay, well, let's move on to our second item, a couple of issues of Australian foreign policy. We'll start with the virtual summit held between Prime Minister Morrison and Prime Minister Modi of India, which happened on the 4th of June, in which a comprehensive strategic partnership was announced, as well as a raft of new cooperative agreements. Now, of course, Alan, our podcast's appetiser for this summit was our interview with former High Commissioner in New Delhi, Harinder Sidhu, And I heartily recommend that to our listeners for a deep and really interesting dive into the nature of India itself and its emerging role in the world and the bilateral relationship. But let's turn to the summit and this comprehensive strategic partnership, Alan. Australia only has a couple of other ones with China, Indonesia and Singapore. So is there any significance to India joining this small circle? And do you foresee stability in the shared interests that are underpinning the closer ties right now? Uh, What's the significance? I've got
1: no bloody idea, Darren. (laughs) Um, Comprehensive strategic partnerships are a recent invention, which I suspect represent no more than an idea for an announceable at the end of a summit. Certainly, uh, if you read the joint statement, the two countries put out at the end of it, it doesn't throw much light on it. Look, when you think about it, the mere fact that we have, as you were saying, comprehensive strategic partnerships with China, with which we're basically not talking at all, Mm. uh, Singapore, with which we have a continuing intimate and productive partnership over many decades, and now India, tells you that the name doesn't actually mean much. For all the reasons we talked about with Harinder in our last episode, I do think that the underpinning interests between the two countries are set to give an impetus to the relationship that it hasn't had before. The statement after the summit appends a long list of arrangements and Mm. declarations and MOUs. It's a sort of Christmas tree full of dangly things and the issues they cover range from maritime cooperation to vocational education and as always with these things they vary in importance but some of them are genuinely important. However, bottom line, if this is the start of a more sustained period of cooperation between India and Australia, it will not be because we've slapped the label of a comprehensive strategic partnership (laughs) on the relationship. What did you think?
0: Look, I think the CSP has value as a signal to the world that Australian and Indian interests are more aligned than ever. But I certainly take your point that we're not talking with one of our other comprehensive strategic partners. And so, maybe that signal is one that is relevant right now in the moment, but not necessarily in the future. And I guess that leads to a variant of the conversation we've had previously, Alan about the alliance and how much does the alliance matter as a piece of paper versus as an ongoing relationship. Now, I haven't followed the trajectory of the bilateral relationship with India nearly as closely, so to me, the agreement seemed more incremental than radical, but That's a good thing. There is broad, high-level agreement on what both countries want the Indo-Pacific to look like in the years ahead, and notwithstanding continued differences and sources of friction that we discussed a bit with Harinder, a solid foundation is being built, and that necessarily happens slowly and piece by piece. All right, the second item on our brief foreign policy agenda is the invitation extended by President Trump to Prime Minister Morrison to attend the G7 meeting in the United States, which has been delayed and will now happen in September. Australia was one of four countries to be invited, along with India, South Korea, and controversially, Russia. Reports suggest that Trump wants to focus the summit's agenda on China, and the Prime Minister has accepted the invitation. Now, Alan, ABC's the ABC's chief political correspondent, Laura Tingle, described the decision as splendidly bad. Uh, do you
1: agree? Well, again, I'm a bit confused by what's going on. Some reports suggested that President Trump's invitation to those four countries was to attend the G7 as his guest's. But other reports stated that he wants to formally reconstitute the G7 to permanently include those countries. Uh, And it seems to me that Australia's response should be different in each case. Mm. Just to to remind listeners about the G7, it began back in 1975 when at the invitation of the French president and the German chancellor, the then leading industrialised countries met together together to discuss the economic problems facing the world, then the result of the oil shock and the collapse of the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate system. Mm. Uh, Russia was then brought in in 1998 and then kicked out again after its annexation of, of Crimea in 2014. Now there's a fun fact with this. The Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser in the 1970s was very keen at the beginning for us to be taken on as a member of the group, and he exerted a lot of effort to try to get that to happen. Japan tried to add us in 1979, but we were blackballed by the United States at the time. (laughs) So look, to get back to your question, Australia attended the G7 as a guest last year at the invitation of President Macron. Mm -hmm. So my own view is that we should attend again in those circumstances. Of course, you know, Laura Tingle is right, a summit meeting hosted by Donald Trump two months out from the American election is going to be a high wire act, but Scott Morrison already has experience Mm, with this in his last visit to uh, Washington. The Europeans have made it clear that they don't want Russia there, but that's an issue for the members to sort out themselves. But on the other hand, if the proposition is that the G7 should be reconstituted into a G10 or G11, I think there are real dangers for us. Obviously, if Russia is in such a group, it won't be a gathering of democracies. But if it excludes China, the rationale can't be, as it was for the G20 a grouping of the leading economies. Mm. That leaves us with the self-evident truth that it would be designed solely to exclude China. And as someone who believes in the importance of foreign policy and diplomacy, I think that's a bad precedent. Mm. But leaving that aside, even more worrying, I think, are the consequences it could have for the other global bodies of importance to Australia, like the G20 APEC and the East Asia Summit. Australian policymakers would need to consider that question really carefully, I think, because my guess is that the signals it would send would either cause China to boycott participation in those other bodies or more likely lead to a downgrading in participation by the US president. And that would be true whether it was Trump or Biden. So we might find ourselves a member of a not very useful organisation, while bodies that have proved their use to us uh, disappear as a result.
0: Mm, Yeah, I agree with all that, Alan, and I'd only add that it would be shocking if the other G7 members allowed this to happen two months out from an election with the pageantry that will involve. I imagine they'll all be very reluctant to agree to anything substantive and just walk the high wire with ScoMo and hope that nothing too disastrous happens. I agree with that, Alan, and let's move on to our third item, which is a bit of a post-mortem on the WHO drama. It seems like a lifetime ago, but it was only a few weeks, and I'm talking, of course, about Foreign Minister Payne's call for an inquiry into the handling of COVID-19. And since our previous discussions on the topic, on Tuesday the 19th of May, the World Health Assembly agreed unanimously to a motion introduced by the european union calling for a quote comprehensive independent and impartial end quote investigation into how the pandemic began and the global response china co-sponsored the resolution which is set to begin at the earliest appropriate moment according to the text The Wall Street Journal editorial board said that Prime Minister Morrison, quote, deserves particular praise for standing firm amid Chinese bullying, while China's Global Times called the motion a slap in the face, characterising it as a rejection of Australia's initial proposal. I think Stephen Zizic of the ABC said it best describing the government emerging, quote, battered and bloodied from the diplomatic fray, clutching a piece of paper and declaring victory. So, Alan, acknowledging that this story isn't over, as of today, what lessons should the Australian government and students of Australian foreign policy take away from these events?
1: There's been a lot of triumphalist uh, media backgrounding on this from ministerial offices around Canberra. Lots. (laughs) <laughs> I mentioned that with a note of irritation because this seems to me to be the way most information on foreign policy and national security policy is being relayed to the public these days rather than through parliamentary statements, ministerial speeches or even formal press releases and that makes it hard for people like you and me to keep an informed eye on the direction of government policy. As you say we've talked about this before of course the international community needed to reflect on and review the handling of the coronavirus and Australia had an important part to play in it but let's just look at the actual resolution The operative paragraph about an inquiry, and it's a a long resolution, so there's lots more to it than that, but the, the paragraph about the inquiry calls for, quote, at the earliest appropriate moment and in consultation with member states, a stepwise process of impartial, independent and comprehensive evaluation, including using existing mechanisms as appropriate to review experience gained and lessons learnt from the WHO coordinated international health response to COVID-19. There's more, but you can get the drift of it. Mm. The resolution was passed unanimously. China was a co-sponsor of it. So my question is simple. Was it possible to get to this sensible outcome without the damage to Australia's relationship with China Mm. that we incurred? And that's a a question of diplomacy. And I can't see myself quite how we got into so much collateral damage Mm. for so small a return. But what are you going to be teaching in your classes, Darren?
0: Well, Alan, first, of course, I'll get you in if you're willing to come and give a guest lecture on, on the practice of Australian foreign policy and, of course, the distinction between foreign policy and diplomacy. So I'll take a step back and think about the geopolitics of it. And I can't help but focus on China because they are the actor with the most influence in the situation you know what china agrees to is going to be what happens both because of their institutional weight but also because of the origins of, of the pandemic and so i found myself drawn to thinking about them rather than sort of targeting them but just thinking about them as the most important or the most relevant actor in this story and my conclusion is that is that this is just another reminder of how hypersensitive beijing is to any hint of criticism As I said in in a previous episode, I didn't view our government's approach as necessarily about maximising public health outcomes and instead saw more of a political logic, but one that we've discussed and you've just said then, Alan, could have been executed better. But the Australian government and all governments are going to react in unpredictable ways from time to time. And and the prudent response of a major power, a a would-be hegemon, is to play it cool. Rather than dialing up tensions to 11 every single time you face criticism, Beijing could have said, you know what, a global inquiry is a great idea. Let's investigate everyone, in particular the United States, which is still struggling... And then quietly lobbied, used their influence inside the World Health Assembly to make sure that the practical consequence of an inquiry posed no direct threat to China's political interests.
1: But but Darren, isn't that exactly what happened? Isn't that precisely what happened? So
0: it is what happened, but it came with a huge dose of wolf warrior diplomacy and heavy criticism from China for the inquiry call which I think then had the purpose of, and we'll talk about this, I think, more in our last segment today, of sort of getting people's backs up against China. So don't you think they didn't need all of the loud noises, the wailing and the gnashing of teeth, in order to get to this outcome themselves?
1: Yeah, well, there, there obviously wasn't so much loud noise and wailing and gnashing of teeth in the World Health Assembly mm. itself. They obviously worked effectively effectively, in that the Wolf Warrior stuff was aimed pretty clearly at us, and Mm. I'm not quite sure how much of that was noticed outside. Um, No, I'm I'm not defending their diplomatic tactics which I think have been very counterproductive at various stages recently but I do think they actually in the end did what you were saying that they should have have done which is to help craft a resolution which they could sign on to which is not pointedly directed against them Mm. and as I said that's why I just wonder whether the game was worth the candle for Australia.
0: And I think Perhaps you've got a pair of examples then. You've got an outcome that Australia wanted that perhaps was achieved at too high a cost. But also you've got an outcome that China can be happy with, but that also was achieved at too high a cost. And I think yeah, from yeah, China's point of yeah. view, uh, and I've said this before, you know, as they become more powerful and more of a leader, they're going to have a larger target on their backs, simply by virtue of being a larger power, before we consider what they're actually doing. And if they're going to react with such strength every single time, it'll get exhausting very quickly. Okay, well, we'll come back to this in our final segment, but let's move on to Hong Kong, our fourth item. And to be honest, we could devote an entire podcast on this alone because i'm talking of course of the new national security law that beijing is planning for hong kong and that would criminalize acts relating to secession subversion terrorism and foreign interference now there's a lot to this issue a lot of depth in part relating back to the original agreement with the uk handing hong kong over to china the process through which the law will be drafted now and what hong kong itself and indeed, the rest of the world can do in response. We don't have time, obviously, to dwell on these questions in depth. Um, so, can I recommend the Little Red podcast from our friends Louisa Lim, no relation, uh, and Graham Smith, who have been providing excellent coverage of the Hong Kong issue since the beginning. Now, from the point of view of this podcast, I'm interested in the approach used by the Australian government to criticise this move. And it was done through two statements. The first, On the 23rd of May, was a joint statement by Foreign Minister Maurice Payne with the Foreign Ministers of the UK and Canada. And the second, dated the 28th of May, also had Mike Pompeo, the US Secretary of State, joining on. Which meant that you had three and then four of the five eyes countries coming together for these statements. Foreign Minister Winston Peters of New Zealand, who joined neither statement, issued his own pair of statements on the exact same days now i didn't pass the language of the new zealand statement too carefully but it it seemed to me that it was at least in the same ballpark as the joint statement so a couple of questions alan can you talk me through the logic of issuing a joint statement here versus doing it on our own i mean is this a common thing for the australian government to do and and is it what you would have advised us to do in this instance
1: It's a pretty simple tactical consideration, really. You know, when you're putting out a statement like this, you have several different purposes. One is to send a clear public message to China that you disagree with their position. The second is a message to people in Hong Kong that you support the protesters' aims. Mm. And finally, you're conveying Australian policy the Australian people. Mm. And the question, therefore, is whether these interests are best served by working with others in a coalition through a joint statement in the hope that that will ramp up the pressure on Beijing or by emphasising your own national interest in the question, issuing it in your own name, perhaps coordinating its release with uh, other countries. Now, that was obviously the New Zealand approach, Both approaches can have advantages. It really just depends on the circumstances. In this case, however, because of the particular historical and legal position of Britain in Hong Kong and the resonances that that has in Beijing, my own view is that we would have been better to follow Winston Peters and go alone. Uh, And this is not because of any concern on my part about Chinese reaction, but because in principle, I really prefer the idea that on issues in our own region, where we have our own clear set of national interests, Australia should be speaking clearly in our own name. And there's an added advantage in that it makes it harder for China to claim that we're dancing to Washington's or London's tune.
0: Mm. I'll hold off on my second question, because I think it will combine nicely with one in the next segment. But something just occurred to me that There is another possible interest here, and it's a vague and and longer-term one, which is if you have decided that a a minilateral or some kind of multilateral approach is needed on a much broader range of issues when China does something that's not in Australia's interests, then maybe there might be a desire to sort of begin to form the habits of working together. And so it's not so much that you're looking to move the needle on Hong Kong But you're beginning to build the idea that there is going to be a collaboration on these kinds of issues into the future.
1: I think that's fair enough. As I said, there are certainly issues and times when building coalitions together and making that clear is important. But to my mind, Australia adding its voice to that of the United States and Britain Mm. on this issue was not going to ramp up the pressure on China, Australia adding its voice to a joint statement by Singapore, Japan, And South Korea mm. certainly would have mm. increased the pressure. So I think it's not just the numbers of countries, it's the countries that you have and whether they have an impact in uh, the capital city you're aiming at. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, we'll turn to our final topic, and it's a
0: familiar one. Geoeconomics, you know, my bread and butter academically. Geoeconomic issues have been especially prominent of late, both because of the supply chain vulnerabilities exposed by COVID-19 and, of course, more recently from Australia's call for the COVID-19 inquiry and the economic and political consequences that have flowed from Beijing's obvious displeasure. So let's turn to three stories just from this past week that caught my eye. First, we have the Australian government's proposal of new powers to block and modify foreign investments and acquisitions in technology, energy, communication, power and other sectors of national security significance, and whether these are made by government-linked or private companies, and a review could be possible before, during or after a transaction has occurred. The government could even force the sale, the forced divestiture of assets where the law or conditions have been violated. Reporting suggests that these proposed changes have been on the table for some years and are thus unrelated to COVID-19, and the plan is to legislate the changes towards the end of this year. Second, we have a travel warning issued by the Chinese government on the weekend on the basis of a quote significant increase in racist attacks on Chinese and Asian people in Australia. Now, of course, travel between the two countries is halted indefinitely, but still, at some point down the track, this warning could curtail tourism or other travel that otherwise might be undertaken. While the Trade Minister said that the warning had, quote, no basis in fact, it's also worth noting that a story from a few days later suggested that there has indeed been an increase in racist attacks reported by Asian Australians since the beginning of April. And third, we have a report in the Australian newspaper on the 8th of June saying that the Five Eyes Intelligence Network has agreed to discussions about a, quote, coordinated strategic economic response, end quote, to the COVID-19 crisis. The point being that economic security is increasingly identified as an important strategic consideration and threat. The article also referred to efforts by the UK to develop Western alternatives to Huawei's 5G technology, with the Johnson government looking to end its own reliance on Chinese technology. So Alan, can we join the dots here? What's happening right now and and what do you make of it?
1: Look, I may be overstating things here and I want you to talk me down from the uh, ledge if you can. But it does feel to me that without quite saying so, the Australian government has moved decisively away from an expectation of engagement or cooperation with China to a default adversarial position. So we're just not hearing anymore the we don't have to choose between China and the United States. It's a false binary choice stuff that we heard so frequently. And what strikes me is the speed with which we moved into this new era. You know, if you can remember back to a couple of months ago, the conventional wisdom was that whatever stresses emerged in the US-China relationship, the goal of containment was not possible or likely. And that while there might be a pulling back in certain areas of supply chains, full decoupling between China and the rest would not happen. And I don't think that's the reality anymore. You could almost hear it in the way uh, Scott Morrison spoke after the Modi summit, extolling the relationship between India and Australia and adding that we would both be working with Japan, Indonesia, Vietnam, the United States, others to pursue these bilateral relationships. And that can only be read in one way in Beijing. Now, I may be wrong. It's a bit hard to tell for sure what's happening, partly because, as I was saying before, the the government isn't actually uh, articulating this particularly Mm. uh, carefully. And we have to rely on the China hawk MPs on the margins, the Mm. self-described Wolverines, and I must say that that self description does tell you something, like uh, Andrew Hastie and uh, Conchetta Firavanti Wells, uh, and they're driving much of the public coverage. And it's not entirely clear to me whether they're acting as stalking horses for the government, for government positions, or simply complicating its messaging and irritating them. Uh, And it must be said, they also have support on the Labor side from Kimberly Kitching and others. And as we were discussing earlier in the the podcast, China itself has been ratcheting up the uh, pressures in response in ways that have often seemed to me entirely counterproductive to their own interests.
0: Well, before I try to talk you down from the ledge, Alan, should we read anything into the Five Eyes angle here? Could this intelligence grouping that we've discussed in the past become a sort of minilateral block that looks to speak and perhaps act on the international stage on certain issues, which is sort of what I was getting at earlier.
1: Yeah, look, I've noticed this before, but as someone who spent part of my young life around the closely guarded secrets of the Five Eyes intelligence relationship based on the SIGINT cooperation during the Second World War, I really find it perplexing how much this is now spruced all over the front pages of newspapers and talked about as a quasi-alliance without, so far as I can remember, you know, ever making that formal transition in fact if you if you take out the intelligence link, and as the Brits can attest that was never one of complete and open sharing, it's uh, it's really just the old Anglosphere idea, close to the heart of Tony Abbott and probably Boris Johnson as well. And there are real questions for Australia about the degree to which, in a whole range of the new areas now being talked about, this serves Australia's interests. It will, in some, it it won't in others, and in most of them, we, Australia, are going to need to engage with far more countries than simply mm. uh, the old Commonwealth and uh, and the United mm. States to address the challenges we face. But you're the geo-economist. Tell us what to think. In terms of talking you down from the
0: ledge, at least on the new foreign investment laws, I listened to a great episode of the, the National Security Podcast, which is of course done by our friends over in the National Security College at the ANU, and in that uh, Chris Vine, the host, interviews Jeff Wilson, who's over at the Perth US Asia Centre, and he describes some more of the context of these changes and emphasises firstly that they are really an updating of an approach to foreign investment that's been around for, for decades. And secondly, that the majority of interventions from the government have been against US acquisitions, not Chinese acquisitions. And thirdly, the greatest risk at this point in time comes from Australian companies that have had their market value obliterated by the pandemic and US hedge funds would be the ones who would pro- most likely be sweeping in to take advantage of that. And so yeah. it's possible, I think, to separate that story as one that doesn't necessarily need to be about decoupling or, or, or about China. And perhaps much like some would say about the Bali inquiry and, and, and anti-dumping, maybe the timing is just is just unfortunate. Although, of course, that's not to suggest that politics isn't playing a role, but I think it's much broader than China and, and, and we can keep that separate. But then... I think the, the point that you finished on, you know, was that China has obviously been doing lots of things that are unhelpful. Um, I think is, is where I've been dwelling and seeing a lot of the reactions inside Australia and indeed in the UK. I try to keep the US separate because Trump is such an unpredictable factor, but I see it through the lens of a response to that. And there is a perennial issue in foreign policy around the topic of, of carrots versus sticks as, as tools of influence. It's often a conversation that's had in the context of, of how to deal with rogue regimes. You can imagine a conversation where someone argues that we might be wanting to sanction this rogue regime, but if we do, if we punish them for their bad behaviour, we're going to empower the hardliners inside that regime, the nationalists, the, the not-good types you know, within that political system. And if we instead rely on engagement and we rely on carrots, you know, we will demonstrate to that country the benefits of engaging constructively with the outside world will empower, therefore, the internationalists, the moderates, the good guys, at least in a relative sense. And that could lead to the kinds of broad, you know, whether it's regime change or whether it's just broad policy change, whether gradual or rapid, that fixes the problem in the first place. And so I've been thinking about that because... Without implying anything about those participating in the current debates, this dynamic strikes me as applying somewhat in the reverse, in, in the current context, of wolf warrior diplomacy being practiced by China. You know, across the world, especially in the democracies of the West, there are still live debates regarding how to deal with China. And you have those who emphasize national security, sovereignty, you know, the real evils of authoritarianism, the unbending importance of liberal democratic values. And that all translates into calls for, I guess, a harder line towards China. And then you have those who emphasise prosperity, jobs, growth, development, the need to engage China if it's going to be a productive member of the international community, all of which translate into calls for a more moderate, more diplomatic, perhaps sometimes a more accommodating approach. Now, each side isn't dismissing the other's argument. Reasonable people on both sides will, of course, agree that balance is needed. But it is true that the emphasis is different and the policy recommendations that flow are different. And this brings me to my point. China's wolf warrior diplomacy is empowering one side of this debate across the West and weakening it on the other side. And, of course, we can say this about what the West is doing towards China as well, but I think it's, it's interesting to reverse the logic here. It's pulling the rug from underneath those who are its most effective advocates. And I think, take this foreign investment legislation. If we were to view it through the lens of being targeted at China, it's still a proposal. There's going to be a consultation process, the parliamentary debate, and then a vote, you know, October of this year. Now, if we think about the travel warning that's been announced by China, there's no practical consequence of that right now because travel has stopped. And so the only consequence that I can see is that it makes life harder, again, for those who are trying to make the case that Australia needs to repair its relations with China, or at least needs a slightly less hard-edged approach. And I wonder, to your point about what's going inside the political party rooms and and what the Wolverines are doing publicly, to my mind, it's quite likely that it's actually complicating the government's message. These events Mm -hmm. create the space for opportunists on both sides, on all sides of politics, to go hard on China, partly, I'm sure, because they believe it, but no doubt also because it serves a broader political agenda that's much more narrowly focused on on Australia and, and domestic issues, but has the consequence, of course, of boxing in the larger policy platform, whether it's the coalition or whether it's, it's the Labor Party. And so, again, reasonable people will disagree on whether or not this is a positive dynamic for Australia's national interests overall. But I think it's pretty clear it's not positive for China's national interests. And I'll return to what I said earlier about China. Coercion and bluster is a very expensive method of, of leadership in international affairs and, more often or not, makes things
1: harder. Yeah, no, good, good, good points. <laughs> I'm down from the ledge. Down from the ledge.
0: <laughs> well, in some ways, it's actually stay, I'm joining you on the ledge because I'm sort of commenting that the Australian response is a consequence of what China is doing. And so I'm, I guess, talking to our friends in China <laughs> as much as I am talking to our listeners and saying, just dial it back and that'll help everybody. Anyway, let's move to our, our final segment, as always, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what do you have for us this week?
1: On on listening, I've got the Spotify podcast "Wind of Change," in which the American journalist Patrick Radden Keefe pursues over seven episodes a rumor he has heard that an iconic rock song from 1990, "Wind of Change" by the German heavy metal group Scorpion, the Scorpions, I know it well, which uh, which was Europe's soundtrack to the end of the Cold War, was actually written by the CIA. <laughs> Look, it's great fun and nostalgic for me because I was around at the time, but relevant for you and your generation, Darren, as a reminder of how espionage, propaganda and influence operations worked in a pre-social media age. Look, and just because we were talking before about the Black Lives Matter demonstrations in America, I'll add Ta-Nehisi Coates' powerful book, Between the World and Me, which was published in 2015 and addressed to his son about the experience of growing up black in America. It was hugely insightful for me. Mm. What about you?
0: Well, I've got two recommendations as well, Alan. The first is a bit of a whimsical one, and it strikes me as maybe the best argument that exists that you should spend more time on social media, which is the videos that have been made by a comedian in the United States named Sarah Cooper, where she mimes, lip-syncs, Trump and Trump's (laughs) press conferences. And you know this because I've sent you a few.
1: Yeah, no, you you sent them to me.
0: But they are just a delight. You know, her facial expressions and the, and the props she uses, it's not satire because it's his actual words, but I think it, it really highlights just the, the absurdity of so much of what he says in a way that's very enjoyable. And I suppose she makes them on TikTok, but they make their way to Twitter. She posts them on Twitter, and so I've been sending you some links. But the good thing, listeners, if you're not on Twitter or social media generally, you could still pull up her Twitter feed if you just Google it, Sarah Cooper, and and maybe Trump and they're just delightful so I'll, I'll leave a link to her Twitter handle uh, in the show notes and if you click on that you'll be able to see her videos I think without needing to create a Twitter account the more serious recommendation is a book that I'm part way through called the revolt of the public and the author is Martin Gurry who was an immediate analyst for the CIA for decades And the book is being lauded as one of the few that foresaw Brexit and Trump because it was first published in 2014. And Gary's argument is that, and it's a complicated one, is that that social media has diffused... And fragmented the information that is received by the public. It used to be sort of a one-way street from elites through these designated channels—the major TV networks and the broadsheet newspapers—and yeah. now there's just an infinite amount of, of information that's accessible, and it's no longer within the control of elites. And the consequence has both angered the mass public and empowered them to to push back against the dominant institutions and elites in society, and so. Because sources of information and media are so diverse, that's able to magnify the grievances of different segments of the public. But also, it means that they're mostly against things rather than for things. There's no plan emerging from these grievances for a coherent new world order, just a rejection of the existing norms and institutions. So technology, in Gary's argument, has rebalanced the power in society, shifting it from elites towards the mass public, but that this will only result in incoherent policies, since a new mob will arise every time now to oppose whatever status quo emerges. I'm not entirely persuaded by his argument, since at least here in Australia we have been insulated somewhat from this phenomenon. But polling does show us that the public is increasingly dissatisfied with the major political parties, and it's not clear to anyone how this can be restored. And if Gary is right, it's going to be impossible or very difficult to do from now on. Anyway, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAA intern Maddie Gordon for her help with research and audio editing, XC Chong for research support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you, and talk to you again soon.